and issues down to basic facts, simplifying the confusing and trying to make the boring entertaining. You are listening to Peter List and Labor Relations Radio. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, welcome back to Labor Relations Radio. You know, there is so much coming out of Washington, D.C. these days that it's almost impossible to keep up with, let alone get into the details and the nitty-gritty of of policymaking and executive orders and bills that are passing the House of Representatives, that it helps to bring experts on who can break the issues down for our listeners. And one of the things that just recently passed the House of Representatives was called the America Competes Act. And the individual I'm, I'm going to bring on tipped me off to a couple things um, just a week or so ago. And I really wanted to have him come on to explain some of the hidden things that were in the America Competes Act. Now, Vincent Vernuccio, I've known him for a very, very long time. And we occasionally talk and I get caught up with him and he gets caught up with me, but he brings over a decade and maybe even longer than that uh, of expertise in labor law and policy. And he's regarded as one of the leading experts in the field. As a labor policy consultant, he's advised a multitude of policy and grassroots organizations throughout the country. And he also holds advisory positions with several several organizations, including the he's a senior fellow with the Mackinac Center, Virginia Works, and others. And he's a lawyer. He's a graduate of the Ave Maria School of Law. And years ago, um, I knew him, I believe it was during the, the Bush era, or maybe it was just at the start of the Obama era that I met him, but he served on the U.S. Department of Labor Transition Team for the Trump administration, and he was a member of the Federal Service Impasses Panel. Under former President George W. Bush, he served as a special assistant to the Assistant Secretary of, uh, for Administration and Management for the Department of Labor. He's well-respected, and he's a sought-after voice on labor policy panels throughout the country and in Washington. And he's advised congressmen and state legislatures, uh, legislators on labor-related issues, and he's testified before the U.S. House of Representatives Subcommittee on the Federal Workforce, Postal Service, and Labor Policy. He is a wealth of knowledge, and it's a pleasure to talk to him and have him come on to explain some issues for our listeners. So I'm going to bring on Vincent Vernuccio. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So you want to get started? Uh, sure. Um, Vinny Vernuccio, I'm president of Institute for the American Worker. So tell me what that is. I've known you a long time. and <laughs> it, it has been a while. I thought by now you would be Secretary of Labor. But, you know, if you recall about 10 years ago, I said, we're going to make you Secretary of Labor. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, a little bit about Institute for the American Worker, I4AW, and you can find us at i, the number 4aw.org on the web. Um, we are a uh, new think tank, and uh, the goal is to elevate federal labor issues from a free market perspective. Um, our main goal is um, doing briefings for members of Congress, their staff, stakeholders, and uh, think tanks around the country to make sure they know what's going on in Congress, what's going on at the White House, at DOL, at the NLRB, and the other labor agencies that are uh, doing shenanigans down here in Washington. And and I know we had a discussion about a week ago. You just launched a uh, news digest, so to speak. Oh, we did. It's called Labor News Today, and you can find it at labornewstoday.org. And uh, it, it's really cool. It's actually multifaceted. So uh, the first part is essentially the drudge report for labor news. So uh, what are the big stories that are happening today in labor? And Peter, I know that you know you have something very similar that's a fantastic resource as well, the uh, Labor Union News. Um, but ours actually does um, some interesting has some interesting research aspects to it too. For instance, if you go to labornewstoday.org um, and you know, you're doing research on, let's see, what the SEIU is doing in California 
with um, trying to extract dues from home healthcare workers. You can actually go in and select multiple tags and get just those California stories dealing with the SEIU on the issue. And you know, the same is true if there's an issue at the Department of Labor or the National Labor Relations Board, or if there's a specific bill in Congress, and I know we're gonna talk about the America Competes Act today, um, or the PRO Act, it can give you all of that customized research, and it actually can go even further. So if you're interested in, well, you just want something more academic or you know has more footnotes or something that's citable, you can actually break it down there as well. So um, we're very excited about uh, all the resources available on labornewstoday.org. Yeah, I'm looking at the uh, right-hand side of the page. You've got the featured research, like revenues estimate, revenue estimates of the PROACT penalties, um, stop the spread, how to how the BBA seeks to replicate Washington State's union-dominated HCBS model nationwide and that sort of stuff's over on the right-hand side of the page. I haven't read yeah. all of it yet, but I, I, go to, <laughs> I go to your site every night just in case I miss something on Labor Union News that I'll, uh, I'll cross-post and stuff. So. Well, we appreciate it, and uh, uh, we're going to make it even easier for you because our Daily Digest is about to launch next week. So that'll uh, bring everything on labornewstoday.org uh, directly to your inbox. But uh, you actually brought up a, a really fun part about this as well. Um, you know, very much like your site, this is all hand curated. It's not just a, you know, Google alert feed or something like that. But um, on I4AW, we actually have a uh, number of senior fellows that uh, are basically the who's who uh, in the labor in the free market labor world of um, of uh, policy wonks and uh, the, the the best of the best experts researching free market policy, and uh, we make sure that you know anything that they're publishing that goes up there that goes on featured research. So um, labornewstoday.org really is in real time getting some of the, you know, the best and the brightest and uh, the most current research on free market labor issues from across the country. Yeah, I, um, so I'm on the America Competes Act page and, the, and I, I think either you tipped me off or somebody else tipped me off to some of the um, union provisions of the America Competes Act. And do you want to do you want to get into that? Yeah, absolutely. So this is something that came uh, really late last week, um, and the America Competes Act. It was uh, supposed to, it, it it evolved into yet another omnibus bill from Congress that turned into a Christmas tree of uh, labor wish list. And this is something else that I four AW does really well when there are these massive, massive bills like the America Competes Act, uh, whether it's the COVID relief uh, relief uh, bills or it's the uh, Build Back Better Act, you know, we're able to really delve down deep and find some of those hidden provisions that some others um, may not know what to look for there. So we're able to elevate that and publish a quick backgrounder with all that details. And we've done that with the uh, America Competes Act. And I saw that you, know, you on Labor, New- uh, Labor Union News have a fantastic write-up on it. So definitely want to plug that. But yeah, there are uh, at the last minute put in some uh, very troubling provisions on this act, um, in things including, uh, if you remember, the Employee Free Choice Act, EFCA, from uh, over a decade ago, blast from the past. Uh, provisions very similar to that, such as card check, which takes away the right of a secret ballot during a union organizing campaign, and it can expose workers to intimidation and coercion and um, all, all sorts of things, but it makes unionization easier. So unfortunately, it was uh, put in this bill, um, and it you know really favors unions at the expense of workers and you know their privacy and their ability to make an informed decision with the privacy of a secret ballot. So that's in there. So, uh, things. Sorry, go ahead. No. So let me let me back up mostly for listeners right now. So the Employee Free Choice Act, which was a bill that passed the House of Representatives, I want to say back in 2008, 2009, um, never made it through the Senate. It contained three primary provisions, which was card check, which we're talking about. Um, and obviously it never got signed into law, but card check currently under today's law, 
which is changing and we get into the NLRB in a couple of minutes with backdoor card check. But the um, under current law, if 30% or more of employees in a bargaining unit or a grouping of employees fill out union authorization cards, that can trigger a secret ballot election. If more than 50% or, well, 50 plus 1% fill out authorization cards, that can either the union can file for a, a petition to have an election with the NLRB or an employer can voluntarily recognize. And I think the key is voluntarily. If under card check, the provisions are, um, and this is in the competes act, if more than 50% fill out authorization cards, the employer, and, the, and I think it's the recipient of any funds under the competes act, right? Uh, I believe, yes, it is. Uh, most of this is talking about loans or uh, receiving funds Grants, from the Compete. Right. Yeah, from the Competes Act. Right. So anybody, any employer who takes federal funds under the Competes Act would have to become unionized if a majority of the employees signed cards. There's no secret ballot election. That is correct. Yeah. And there's, there's another provision in there that is also... Um, kind of scary, and that's the binding arbitration. Yeah, so this is uh, yet another issue that keeps uh, keeps popping up, and um, there is binding arbitration for first contract in here, so basically forcing, um, uh, forcing uh, both workers and job creators to accept the decision of a arbitration panel if they do not come to a first contract after being organized. And uh, this is something that I know your listeners are probably very familiar with, uh, another provision in the Protecting the Right to Organize Act or the PRO Act. Uh, but it, it's actually very funny the way they did it in the PRO Act because there's two separate arbitration provisions. And, you know, I, I like to say it's just it's a lot of chutzpah on the uh, PRO Act drafters. And uh, for this provision, they're if one side does not agree to binding arbitration, they're forced into it. So it's actually mandating forced arbitration. But there's another provision of the PRO Act that says if both parties have agreed to arbitration, such as for employment disputes, uh, that's actually illegal. So they're, they're forcing arbitration for first contracts in the PRO Act, and it's a very similar provision in, in uh, the America Competes Act, that says that even if you don't agree to arbitration, you're going to be stuck with it. But in the PRO Act, they have another provision right after that saying that, you know, even if you uh, agree to arbitration and both parties voluntarily agree to arbitration on an employment dispute, you can't do it. So, you know, go figure. Right. You know, a lot of, um, from the employer's perspective, binding arbitration is bad. And what they also have in there is essentially you've got to open your books. What a lot of people who are pro-binding arbitration don't understand is it takes away the rights of the employees too. And literally if an arbitrator puts you into a contract or an arbitration panel puts you into a contract, you're forced to live with it, or you've got to go find another job. Like you don't even have the right to strike, which in theory you have the right to strike in a union, you know, during normal negotiations, but with binding arbitration, the government's just going to put you into a contract and your choice is to either like it or leave. That's right. and, and it's unilateral. So, uh, you know, essentially one side can just say, no, we want to go to binding arbitration and there is no mutual agreement. As with most other arbitration, good arbitration, where both sides have previously agreed, yes, we want to voluntarily go into arbitration. We think that's the best way to solve this issue. And if or if an issue ever comes up, this is the best way to solve it. Um, what you're seeing in the PRO Act, what you're seeing on people that receive funds from the America Competes Act and other attempts in Congress is that one side could unilaterally mandate that type of arbitration for a first contract. Right. So this this bill, the Competes Act, is over 3,000 pages, right? It's very long. Yes. It's, uh, once again, uh, you know, omnibus bill that is has passed the House of Representatives and uh, like the other omnibus bills that they pushed uh, in the last couple months, it you know, is definitely a Christmas tree of different wish list items that they cannot pass with normal legislation alone. The, um, yeah, that's just like the uh, Build Back Better plan, right? 
it basically exactly like the Build Back Better plan, which had um, you know some very troubling provisions in that as well. Um, a, a lot of handouts um, that you know were coming at the expense of workers. Um, things that were giving tax breaks for union politics, um, and you know, discriminating against workers that didn't want to pay for union politics in non-right-to-work states, um, and many, many other things. So yeah, these things keep coming up in these omnibus bills. Instead of you know simply just trying to say you know, we have to get something done to help the American people or to you know keep America competitive, it turns into a uh, wish list of giveaways of things that are so unpopular by themselves they can never pass. Right. And so I'm uh, I'm on your website and I'm looking at the page for the America Competes Act and then midway down, and this kind of goes to the fact that it's a 3,000-page bill. So you've got a couple references to neutrality requirements, and one of the references is on on page 730 of the bill, the other's on page 789 of the bill, where it talks about, you know, the employers have to remain neutral, this quote, remain neutral in any organizing effort for the term of the grant loan or loan guarantee, end quote. So do you want to explain what neutrality means? Sure. That's actually bringing a lot of these concepts together, uh, you know, especially card check. So, Peter, you know, if, if, if you're familiar with some of the pushback that, um, you know, Companies like Walmart recently have been getting, or Amazon, uh, where the union's trying to do whatever it can to harm the reputation and the bottom line of a company. That's called a corporate campaign. And the reason they engage in these very sophisticated PR campaigns is to get exactly what the Competes Act is trying to do, which is get a company to sign a neutrality agreement. Now, what is a neutrality agreement? It, it, it has several provisions, and they, they really harms workers most of all. So the first thing, we were just talking about card check. The company agrees to deny workers the right to a secret ballot election and recognize the union by card check. Uh, they also give uh, the union workers private contact information. So part of a neutrality agreement would say, well, you know, the, the union gets access to workers at home, uh, their home addresses, personal cell phones, emails. Uh, and once again, you know, you see these themes bubbling up in several parts, different parts of legislation. You know, for instance, all of this is also in the PRO Act, um, the, the personal contact information that workers are not able to opt out and say, no, we don't, you know, we're not interested, you know, stop contacting us. That isn't an option. Um, and then the last is actually a gag order on the employer saying that, no, we're not going to talk to employees about unionization, we're just going to let the union give their side of the story, and unfortunately, the employees don't get a full picture because if an employer agrees to one of these neutrality agreements or has to agree due to a provision in a bill like the American Competes Act, if they take a loan or they take a grant, then um, they simply can't give their employees the full picture of what unionization means. Yeah, so the neutrality aspects of this, um, and a lot of a lot of people would interpret this as purely a gag order, uh, which is what it is. They don't want the employer speaking negatively about the union or anything like that. And I actually did work, oh God, probably fifteen or more years ago uh, for an employer under a neutrality agreement, and I don't know if you could do this in with with the competes act, any recipients of the funds for the re, uh, competes act, but this was private sector and um, we we're under a neutrality agreement and literally uh, they're in the card signing phase of a card signing campaign. And so to remain neutral, couldn't speak badly about the union at all. Uh, but we could educate the employees about what unionization is, what collective bargaining is and, and all that without bad mouthing or bashing the union. And I actually had a union rep who, under the agreement, sat in my meetings. And as I was answering questions for the employees, you know, it came up to me after one of the meetings said, I've never heard it, you know, put out that way. And I said, well, it's, you know, right on page 35 of the basic guide, the National Labor Relations Act, just need to know the law. So there are ways to communicate with employees while remaining neutral about what their rights are. I don't know if you can do that under this act, you know, because it's you're rece receiving federal monies. Right. So they may have more requirements somewhere in there. The other thing it's got in here, um, 
and you've got this on your website is they've got the uh, Davis Bacon. Um, there's it, is there Davis Bacon requirements in here? Is it it's referencing? Uh, yeah, it says there's there's also prevailing wage require, requirements in the bill of the tax. So Davis Bacon, um, I just had uh, Ben Brubeck from Associated Builders and Contractors on explaining it with regard to uh, construction industry. But if they're doing Davis Bacon, is this only for construction or is this for everybody who takes money? I believe most of the provisions are for construction. There's some solar panel manufacturing and uh, some uh, and some other issues. But yeah, primarily what we are talking about here are the loans, and the loans are going for you know these type of special construction projects. Right. Um, yeah, we were chatting a little bit on Monday about the uh, White House Task Force report that had just come out, and neither he nor I were able to get through it by the time we were recording. And I did see something in there about. Um, using prevailing wages or PLAs on uh, climate type projects, you know, the, the wind farms out in the ocean and, and uh, anything being done in the national parks, you know, Department of Interior type work and all that. So that's, uh, there's, they're coming, it seems as though they're trying to put in a whole bunch of things from different angles, same things, but, you know, whether it's prevailing wage, PLAs, um, neutrality, card check, you know, they're coming at it from a whole bunch of different angles. No, that's right. And, you know, different angles and multiple bills. I mean, it, it's funny, you, you know, you see these type of provisions over and over again, whether, it, you know, it's, you know, neutrality in the CARES Act, whether it's all the provisions in Build Back Better, whether it's now the America Competes Act. And of course, you're also seeing a lot of agency action. So they are doing essentially whatever they can to get these unfortunately bad ideas through, except for, you know, saying, okay, let's just have an up or down vote on them um, because, you know, you see things like the Protecting the Right to Organize Act or the PRO Act being stalled out in Congress right now. You know, even though essentially, uh, you know, Democrats have a majority of the House and have a tie, but not a filibuster proof tie uh, in the Senate. Hey, you know, let me pause on the Senate for a second. And I this um, this hasn't made a lot of news. They kind of right now de facto don't have a majority like it's it's 50 50 with vice president harris being the tiebreaker so in theory it's 51 but they just had a uh a, a senator democratic senator who had a stroke who's out of commission for four to six weeks i think they said in the press that he's coming back in six weeks so right now it's like 49 to to 50 right they don't That's have right. a clear it, it, majority it, it, it is very unfortunate. It was earlier in February, um, New Mexican Senator um, Ben Lujan uh, had a stroke and um, obviously, you know, our, you know, our thoughts with him and his family right now. Uh, but no, he is not. He is not on the floor of the Senate. He is recovering. It could be weeks. It could be longer. Um, but right now, uh, the Senate technically has a 49 to 50 Republican majority. Right. Yeah, that it. I've only seen one article about that in the last few weeks, and it's kind of interesting. Nobody's really talking about that, but there's that's basically stalling everything. Not to mention Kirsten Cinema. Is it Kristen or Kirsten? I should know because uh, the, uh, the yeah, Kirsten, yes, your, your your home state of Arizona. That's yeah. right. Um, uh, her and uh, Joe Manchin from West Virginia. Um, you know, they really are listening to their constituencies. And, you know, looking out for, you know, not, well, not just what's best for West Virginians or Arizonans, but also the country and they're standing firm against some of these wish list bills and some of the, these ideas that are really just doing nothing more than favoring the special interest. Yeah. Now, uh, Manchin came out for the PRO Act, right? Uh, he did come out for the PRO Act, but he is against um, amending the Senate rules to change the filibuster. Right. So they're at the moment, at least, um, of course, it, I guess it depends on how many more bathrooms the left chases cinema into, but they seem to be holding pretty firm on not getting some of this poisonous stuff through. Almost that, slipped on that, but well, uh, it, it, uh, you know, you know, they also may just have, you know, you know, 
pragmatically a long memory. Um, you know, you can ask Harry Reid how well it worked out when he nuked the filibuster for judges. So uh, what goes around comes around, and uh, you know, the Senate rules are there for a reason. They're, you know, the Senate is the slower, deliberative, you know, body that should be coming to bipartisan consensus. And you know, and I I think both Cinema and Mansion respect that and don't want to, you know, blow things up, especially as you know they stare into a election that's coming down later this year. Well, you know, it's I've said this on either Facebook or Twitter a couple of times. If if you're going to nuke the filibuster and just go to a simple majority vote, why even bother having the Senate? Like, just throw it all into a, a unicameral you know, government as opposed to bicameral. <laughs> oh, well, Peter, that, that, that is uh, far beyond my pay grade. <laughs> I am a, I am a labor wonk policy guy. And, I, know. Uh, I usually, I, you know, and to try not to veer too far out of my lane. So uh, I, I, I will let you opine on those issues. Yeah, no, it's just a logical question. I try to stick to logic. If you're going to have the same rules, then, you know, why not just have one body instead of two? So, um, have you been following the backdoor card check that uh, the, the National Labor Relations Board, GC, is pushing, the Joy Silk Doctrine and all that? Well, I mean, I don't even know if I'd call that backdoor. I definitely call what they're trying to do with the Protecting the Right to Organize Act uh, backdoor card check. Uh, happy to talk about that afterwards. But, uh, yes, w- w- with Joy Silk, once again, um, you know, they can't get card check passed. They can't take away the right of the secret ballot, you know, in a direct up or down vote in Congress, even when, you know, during the Employee Free Choice Act a decade ago, there were you know, pretty much a super majority of those that were uh, partisan towards unions. Um, and, you know, they tr- they're trying to couch it in the PRO Act. They're trying to bury it in bills like the America Competes Act. But barring all that now, um, we're also looking at administrative action. And uh, the National Labor Relations Board General Counsel, uh, Abruzzo, has uh, said that, well, you know, hey, there, there may be a way that the NLRB can do, uh, you know, backdoor card check or take away the right to a secret ballot for workers administratively. So, you know, she has announced that she's looking into that, whether it's going to be by rulemaking, whether it's going to be by case, we'll see what happens. But uh, it, it is something where, once again, you know, legislatively, it's not going to pass. And card check is very unpopular. You know, shockingly, the right to privacy and the secret ballot is extremely popular. So they can't get it done through general legislative means. So they're doing whatever they can, whether it's in omnibus bills or whether it's via administ- uh, executive administrative action to try to take away the secret ballot from workers. Yeah, the, um, well, Jennifer Bruzo is the NLRB's general counsel, came out with a memo back in August, and I think it was on like page seven. She has a, a paragraph in there talking about Joy Silk and she's seeking cases. Um, but the my understanding of it is, and I did an episode uh, with Phil Wilson from Labor Relations Institute about two, three weeks ago, maybe a little bit longer, that because uh, he he and I talked about this back in September after the memo came out. But essentially, if a an employer um, it receives a recognition or demands recognition letter from a union saying we represent a majority of your employees and does not recognize the union, the employer under the Joy Silk Doctrine theory is going to have to prove that it has a good faith doubt as to majority status from the employees. And barring good faith doubt, GC Abruzzo is saying, we're going to go forward with a bargaining order. So you're going to have to bargain if you can't prove there's good faith doubt to the majority status, which is essentially backdoor card check. Exactly. Uh, Peter, you can explain it much better than I can. So, um, they're trying that. And then obviously with the PRO Act, there's something very similar, except the employer is guilty until proven innocent. And um, the PRO Act would still allow the election, except if the union charges an unfair labor practice or uh, other things against the employer. If the employer cannot prove they were innocent of that, they would recognize the card. So whether it is Joy Silk of an employer proving that they have a good faith doubt on 
whether the union has majority support via cards or guilty until proven innocent. Once again, they're doing whatever they can to try to get card check and take away the secret ballot from workers. And happy to go into some of the issues with card check and things that we've seen from around the country, because I, I have actually written a couple, a uh, couple studies on this and done some very deep dives. Oh, sure. Yeah. It's, I can tell you from firsthand experience of, of dealing with employees who have been duped into signing authorization cards. That's, that's very common. You mean, um, hey, would you, you want to come for this pizza party, by the way, signed here? And then in you know, six-point font on the bottom of the card, it says, I hereby allow the union to organize me. Oh, or, yeah. Uh, or hereby authorize the union to represent me. Or giving employees who only speak and read Spanish English cards saying that we're going to help you with your rent or we're going to help you with your immigration papers, stuff like that. Yeah, that just happened recently. Yeah, I mean, I've also seen some very troubling, uh, troubling stories of you know, organizers, and I won't say they're union organizers. They are, and I'll get into why I'm describing them this way, organizers that are passing out union cards but technically not part of the union, literally going to people's homes and saying, well, you know, uh, you know shame if, uh, you know, that's a nice car you have in the driveway, shame if anything happened to it, or doing repeated visits um, and, you know, putting people in fear of, what would happen to their family or their property. Um, and in order to get the union to stop or to get the organizer to stop, simply sign this card and they go away. And these are all documented cases, uh, whether it's through testimony from former union organizers in, uh, that have testified before Congress to actual National Labor Relations Board cases where that, uh, you know, shame if anything happened to your car uh, case was actually brought to the NLRB, and the NLRB actually said it was okay because they just said it was an over-exuberant organizer, and um, you know he wasn't actually working for the union, so you know no problem there. We should let it slide. Yeah, that's um, yeah, that happens quite a bit when you hear some of these horror stories, and it's usually done by somebody who's very pro-union, but they're not technically employed by the by the union so therefore they're not agents of the union where if an agent of the union did some of these egregious actions it'd be considered unlawful so it's yeah there's case law going back decades on that stuff exactly but it still counts as majority support and right. uh, you know unless you go case by case by case and i mean here, but here's the bottom line you know aside from all of that you know the way to address that is you have a secret ballot election fine i'll sign this card even if I don't have the full information, even, you know, if I'm just doing it to get you off my doorstep, but then I get the protection of a ballot box, just like we vote for president or for Congress or for almost any other public office, workers should have that right in union organizing elections to make an informed decision in the privacy of a ballot box. And unfortunately, the America Competes Act, the PRO Act, Joy Silk, all of that, whether overtly or, like you said, through backdoor car check, takes that away. Yeah, the um, I, and I have this conversation a lot with people. They a lot of folks don't realize that you know there are restrictions that the National Labor Relations Act places on employers, like they can't threaten, they can't interrogate, they can't promise, they can't spy. Some of them make sense, right? The promises part does not apply, nor does interrogation apply to unions. So unions are legally allowed, and this is one of the big problems I have with the way the law is structured. Unions are legally allowed to mislead people into signing authorization cards. You know, sign a card, I'll get you $5 more an hour. Sign a card, we'll do this, we'll do that. That's legal for a union to do, illegal if an employer were to do that. And so as a result, people sign cards not understanding how the law works, and then it's a matter of, and this is where the neutrality part comes in, if an employer doesn't educate the employees on the realities of the law and they can't you know, really talk to them because they're under a, a gag order, people wind up unionizing and then they get stuck in a contract that doesn't match what the union promised them to begin with. And there are cases through the NLRB where, where the NLRBs dismissed them that literally they wind up you know, hey, this isn't what you promised. You suck, but now I'm stuck in a contract. <laughs> so again, it's, you know, I, I've always advocated, not a lot, but, you know, for years said there needs to be a truth in union organizing act. You know, just just require the truth from organizers. And that would like, that would put me out of business. That would be great. 
So I can go mow lawns. Well, or, or just have parity. You know, like you said, you know, it is very one-sided. There are a lot of restrictions on what an employer can do and say, and you know, some of them are justified. But that should translate over to the unions as well. So you know, just have parity. Don't have it as one-sided. Right. Well, and you know, the, this goes back to the National Labor Relations Act has been around since 1935. It's not structured necessarily for today's workforce. Um, you know, unions were definitely the underdog, and they'd argue they still are. But you know, you have. 100% of the employers out there, maybe 5% are the major, you know, top thousand or more employees in the workforce. Whereas, you know, 95% of the employers out there are mom and pops or very small businesses. And the balance of, you know, a union coming in to do all these things with workers and saying, hey, we're going to do this and do that. Well, a lot of the this mom and pops out there, the small businesses can't necessarily deal with a union just from the standpoint of economically. And then when you put the government in charge of it, you know, with binding arbitration, that's where you're going to see a lot of companies say, no, I'm done. That's right. I've actually done, you know, some studies. I I couldn't agree more on, you know, the union model being outdated for today. I mean, I I frankly think that a lot of, uh, you know, unions would say that their model is outdated and have said their model is outdated. So I actually did a study, and both this and uh, the study I did on car check are available at Mackinac.org, M-A-C-K-I-N-A-C.org, but uh, did a study called Unionization for the 21st Century, saying that, hey, you know, if, if unions adapted, if they became professional service organizations that were completely voluntary, that didn't force employers to negotiate with them, didn't force employees to accept unwanted negotiation and, you know, frankly, weren't forced to represent employees that didn't want it, that, you know, they could adapt and that could be their way forward. Unfortunately, what we are seeing is even though they probably acknowledge that, you know, their model is outdated, they keep doubling down on the old ways of the past. Yeah. Well, and this is a a kind of a broader discussion, um, but it's, you know, it goes down to the fact that, Unions are seeking something to sell employees um, or they've been so successful in enacting laws to protect workers that they really don't have anything to sell employees anymore. So, and I, I had this conversation not too long ago where, you know, up in New York city, for example, they're, they've instituted a just cause law for the fast food industry. And so if I'm a union organizer the government is mandating wages. They're mandating workplace safety. They're mandating now that I can't be terminated without just cause. What am I selling to the employees? And that's, you know, I think that's more of an existential problem that unions are having. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'll just go back to a quote. So this was a uh, Michigan public radio. This was on Michigan Public Radio, uh, a commentator called Jack Lessonberry. And this was several years ago, but it was so good I actually included it in my study. So uh, obviously you can imagine Michigan Public Radio is no bastion of you know, right-wing conservatism, um, nor is Jack Lessonberry. Uh, but he had a great quote, and he said, you know, a lot of union leadership seems to have figured out what to do in 1936. And if 1936 ever comes back, they're ready. But then he says, but it's not coming back, and they have to come up with a new model. And whether it's because of the increases in, uh, you know, laws and other workplace protections, you know, either state or federal law, because of minimum wage laws, uh, because that their model is simply out of date, because workers want independence and want and are shying away from compulsion or one size fits all collective bargaining agreements, you know, they, they do have to come, they do have to adapt. And, you know, 1936 is not coming back. Well, you know, that, um, so give an example in, in modern day terms, what, what some of the problem is New York, uh, 2012, 10 years ago, right. That was the fat, the first fast food worker strike. And so that beget the entire fight for 15 campaign, which, was funded by the SEIU and still largely is. Um, and so they've been successful. And that that stemmed from a 2009 organizing plan from the SEIU, thinking that they're going to have EFCA in place. 
so they've been very successful in getting this fight for 15 or the $15 minimum wage concept in numerous cities and states around the country. So you've got California, New York, a bunch of others are raising the minimum wage to 15. They want to do it federally. And, but going back to the entire purpose of it for the SEIU was to unionize the fast food industry. They've been so successful with getting fight for 15 out there and getting the minimum wages raised up in these states, they still don't have a single bargaining unit. No new members, no no new dues coming out of it. So successful on the one side, huge failure. So now they're turning, of course, back to the government to force people into unions. Uh, but you are forgetting, you know, one of the key parts of a lot of those efforts, and that was, you know, $15 minimum wage. But if you have a collective bargaining agreement, you don't have to comply with it. As we saw with, you know, their first, uh, you know, their first, uh, you know, unfortunately I'll call it their victory of the first city to enact one of those $15 bit of wages uh, around the Seattle airport, the SeaTac. Yeah, uh, that's right. They, they had the exemption there and they started rolling it out. It wasn't until they tried to roll it out in, uh, I believe it was L.A., that they started getting pushback to, uh, wait, wh- why are you exempting yourselves from these bills? Yeah, to drive. Yeah, that was uh, the L.A. City Council did that with um, for the hospitality industry, the hotels. So is you have if you're non-union, you have to pay your employees fifteen dollars an hour. But if you're unionized with a contract, you can pay less. And yeah, that kind of backfired a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Um, And, you know, now with inflation, you know, who knows where things are going. But, uh, you know, I I think you're, you're absolutely right. But going back to, you know, the fight for 15, that was also one of the big, the advent and the start of what we're seeing as worker centers around the countries or, you know, either union backed, union funded, um, or even foundation funded organizations that are out there, they Say they're non-union, but they're still doing things that a traditional union would try to do, such as representation or saying speaking for workers. But these are the ones that, you know, once again, it, a lot of this keeps going back to the same type of themes. They're trying to do these massive PR campaigns to harm companies. You know, Fight for 15's case, it was to um, try to smear Taco Bell, McDonald's, places like that in order to get them to agree to these neutrality agreements that have card check in them to make unionization easier. Right. And then, and then that, you know, and maybe they didn't think about this with the blueprint back in 2009, but um, one of the things that they ran into is most of these big fast food chains are, you know, franchise and franchisor and franchisee. So now they're trying to break that wall down which that's going to bust apart the franchise industry, according to Franchise Association. That's right. That's uh, what's known as the joint employer doctrine. And uh, this is something that, once again, it's in the PRO Act. We're seeing it in some of these, you know, we're seeing it to a greater or lesser degree in some of these other bills, but we're going to very likely see administrative action trying to do this. Uh, they, you know, was, there was administrative action under President Obama, and you know, essentially they're going to try to revamp that. I, I'm guessing, and I, I think it's a, a strong guess that President Biden is going to do something very similar to, you know, essentially saying that that mom and pop shop on the corner, so that McDonald's that you have on the corner, that's not owned by McDonald's corporate, that's actually owned by a small business owner, saying that they're actually joint employers with uh, McDonald's corporate. Because once again, going back to those neutrality agreements, those corporate campaigns, it would be easier for the union to do a corporate campaign against McDonald's, get them to sign a neutrality agreement, and then be able to organize you know, several restaurants or several McDonald's at once instead of going from individual McDonald's small business owner to individually franchise, uh, franchisor small business owner and try to organize them that way. And I mean, it really is unfortunate because, um, you know, at I4AW uh, last year, we actually had a, uh, a a briefing on this. And there was a man named Damon Dunn, who is a Dunkin' Donuts franchise owner. And he had uh, probably one of the, the best quotes of the briefing. You know, he said that if this happens, owners in his franchise that are making $200,000 a year are going to be relegated to $50,000 a year managers. And that's because if the corporate, 
uh, the corporate entity, the franchisor, um, is considered a joint employer, they're going to have vastly increased liability. So essentially, they're going to have to take over the stores. And people that own their own business now will be relegated to managers. And that really is one of the big tragedies of joint employer. Yeah, it's it's interesting. This is it's kind of like having my cake and eat it too. The um, on the one hand, they're going for joint employer status, so they can put together a whole bunch of franchisees, you know, into one bucket. But then on the flip side to it, they're arguing on the other side of for what are called micro units, right? So uh, I don't know if you're following the whole effort to go back to the specialty healthcare standard but that's that's coming back it's essentially it's a goldilocks issue so uh it doesn't matter if it's too big or too small whatever way allows you know unions to come in and organize and hey you know if you know if workers want to be organized that's one thing but what we're talking about here is unions slicing and dicing um either too big with joint employer and you know try to organize entire franchises or too small with these micro unions which i'll talk about with a second um, where, you know, you know, traditionally the majority of workers probably didn't want to be organized, but the unions are trying to do whatever they can to get their foot in the door. So let, let's talk about specialty healthcare, what it was, and what micro unions are. So micro unions um, are you know, pretty much as they sound. It's not a full-fledged unit, but it's a smaller portion of uh, a collective bargaining unit that the unions know they can organize. So without getting into the too much of the labor jargon, Let's just, you know, for instance, say uh, a Macy's store. If you can't, if you as a union can't organize a majority of employees, let's say it's 100 employees in the entire Macy's store, but you can get three out of the five people in the women's shoe department, for a micro union, you're going to say, well, we just want to organize the women's shoe department, which, you know, pun intended, gets their foot in the door. And then they have billboards, then they can force the employer to negotiate with them, then they get access to other employees, and they can kind of drive a wedge and start organizing uh, from there. Now, you know, the other problem comes in, let's say, you know, SEIU organizes the shoe department, but the Teamsters come in and they organize the suit department. What happens if both unions have di- want different hours or different uh, start times or close times? or things that could be in conflict, if they both organize, now the employer has what's known as a uh, obligation to bargain, a duty to bargain in good faith. And they can't just say, well, you know, SEIU said they wanted this. So, you know, our store hours are from 10 o'clock to 9, you know, 10 a.m. to 9 p.m. Sorry, Teamsters, we're not negotiating with you over shifts because that's just the way it is. That's actually impossible. Uh, that would not be possible because they have that duty to bargain in good faith. Um, so what, in a nutshell, what microunions do or what specialty healthcare did is it changed the way the NLRB looks at what's known as a collective bargaining unit or essentially all the workers um, under one contract. And it took it from a, you know, general what's known as a community of interest standard to a much smaller standard where unions could slice and dice a workforce to essentially get who they, who they know they can organize and just go after them. Yeah, the the analogy, your analogy is good, and I think it's based actually on the Bergdorf uh, Goodman case up in New York. Back yeah, you called me out on it. I'm, I'm I'm not really it's, that original. That it's, but it that was a case where it was involving shoe departments on. I want to say it was the first and third floor, or the fifth and sixth floor, or something like that, right? Um, and the the analogy I give to employers or audiences when I'm talking to them is. Imagine being mom and pop's diner and you've got six employees, you know, two dishwashers, two cooks, and two wait staff. Well, technically, you could have three different unions representing those six employees because they would be micro unions or micro units. And if you had a, you know, a brew house on the back of your diner, which had two brewmasters and two bartenders, you could have potentially five unions representing 10 employees, which is, you know, for small businesses, it's just a killer. It is. I mean, it it also comes down to kind of, you know, once again, the 1930s model of bargaining where there is that duty to bargain in good faith and, you know, 
now a lot of that isn't translating into what today's workforce wants, especially if they do want more independence and they do want to be able to have individualized contracts, um, which is good as long as it's voluntary. But you know, once you have that duty to bargain good, in good faith and there starts to be conflicts there, that's when those mom and pop shops, especially those that you know can't afford high-priced labor lawyers, are going to start to get into trouble. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's usually if you see violations of the law, you know, charges at the National Labor Relations Board. A lot of that comes from not where an employer is intentionally violating the law, but it's the smaller businesses who really just don't know the law. And you know, unfortunately, it, I had this discussion with uh, Phil Wilson a while back. That, you know, it'd be interesting if Congress went back and said, and he said, you know, pick a number. But if it's, you know, 25 or more employees the NLRA applies to or 50 or more, whatever the number is, but it's just not applicable today based on 1930s, you know, because the workforce has changed, the businesses have changed. And there's so many more laws out there that protect employers, whereas 1930s there weren't. So. No, that's right. I mean, it, I th- honestly, and I think both on a union end um, and a you know free market or management or policy end, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people would agree that you know today's labor laws are outdated. Now we may have vastly different ideas of what they should be updated to, but it, it, it is true that they were created for the 1930s um, or you know an industrial revolution. Uh, economy where, you know, really workers were pretty much transferable. And that's just not the case today with today's, you know, more educated, independent workforce. And and unfortunately, what we're seeing with a lot of uh, the policies, you know, whether it's administrative or things like in the PRO Act or even these provisions in the America Competes Act, is that they're trying to shoehorn today's economy into the 1930s or the industrial revolution economy and that's just not working right well if if you look at the rhetoric what they're really trying to do is and this has been this way since i was in the union movement they're trying to bring over european style labor management systems and you know that's from healthcare to the labor model it's always been let's look to europe for what we want to do here in the United States. And it's never been that way in the United States. And we're leaning, unfortunately, more and more towards that. So it's, we're in an interesting time. And I've been, I've been literally around unions for, you know, as a member, then union rep and, you know, plus my degree and all that sort of stuff for almost four decades. Yeah. I joke that, you know, many of the people I talk to don't even know who Ronald Reagan was, but I've been around the union movement since Ronald Reagan's time. And it's, um, this is kind of a very fascinating time. I thought it was I thought it was interesting under the Obama administration, during the Trump administration, there wasn't that I mean there's stuff going on, but it just wasn't that exciting. This is fascinating. It's just more from sitting back and watching. So, what else do you have going on at at the uh, I4AW? <laughs> uh, well, we're about to release a report on the NLRB and some of the, uh, you know, some of the priorities there and, you know, a lot of ways that you know, unions are using, you know, some misinformation um, and uh, engaging in these type of corporate campaigns. Um, you know, we're also watching things like the National Labor Relations Board, uh, you know, speaking of, you know, trying to shoehorn into old ways, our old policy, our industrial revolution era policy is once again uh, looking to attack independent contractors and turn them into employees. So taking independent workers that are entrepreneurial and want to work for themselves and, you know, making them into employees, you know, just so they can be more easily organized. Uh, So, you know, we're watching that. Going into what you were just talking about, we also do a lot of work on um, uh, what you're referring to with European style labor law is sectoral bargaining. And we've seen, you know, both, you know, from the president to Congress to movement at the state level, uh, attempts to try to institute sectoral bargaining. And the interesting thing, though, is that those advocates 
see this European style bargaining for what they want it to be and not what it actually is. Um, and if your listeners are not familiar with sectoral bargaining, essentially it's one size fits all bargaining for entire industries. So even if unions, you know, could not organize a, a work site, those workers, according to what the proponents view of sectoral bargaining is, uh, would be subject to a national, you know, labor agreement that you know a, a union would a, a union would either dictate terms to or actually be negotiating. Uh, so you know, we we've done work on that. We're you know also looking to you know reach across the aisle and work with people that you know may not agree with us on everything, but look for ways to modernize labor law and modernize labor policy, kind of like we were just talking to talking about having it uh, you know much more voluntary and even you know ways to improve unions. And you know, by making them less compulsory and into professional service organizations. So, uh, Peter, you know, we're having a lot of fun. Yeah, it sounds like it. The um, yeah, the sectoral bargaining—that's not getting enough airplay, I don't think, in terms of what they're trying to do with that. Because I've seen a couple articles. I've saw a couple where I think it was a Republican proposing something like that. I don't, I don't remember who it was. I've got to go back and look. But it's you know, that's a dangerous concept to a free market type of economy when you're having the government and you know or state legislatures imposing terms and conditions of employment like area-wide agreements and say construction industry right if you're doing that with non-union employers and their employees that's dangerous to free market it is and it's also bad for workers i mean one of the best yeah. ways that a worker can get a raise is by you know going to a different job and it you know it allows them to you know have competition for their labor and unfortunately if you have you know an industry wide agreement they can't get that raise by go you know by going to another employer and saying hey if you want me you know you have to you know pay me more than i am now and uh, you know give me that i'll jump ship and i'll come work for you if there's a national agreement that's impossible um, so it takes wages out of competition. It harms workers. Uh, it harms small businesses because, you know, as you can imagine, if there is an industry-wide agreement, you know, the people that are going to be at the table and have the most clout are big businesses that are going to be working, you know, on the opposite side of the bargaining table from unions. And, uh, you know, small businesses, their needs, their needs of flexibility um, and, on, you know, and innovation they're not going to be able to do that because they're going to be drowned out because the big business is going to be, you know, essentially holding all the cards while they're negotiating with unions. So, you know, for many, many different reasons, uh, sectoral bargaining is a very bad idea. And it's, you know, really interesting that proponents of sectoral bargaining keep, you know, pointing to Europe or Australia. Uh, but then when you start scratching the surface of what sectoral bargaining is over there, which, you know, it, it's not good. And I, I don't want to say it is, but it, it, it's not, what they're making it out to be. Well, you know where I think it's happening, and I haven't dug into this enough, is in California where they just passed the FAST Act, and they're setting up a basically a commission at the state level to um, have for the fast food workers. They're basically just going to mandate certain things, whether it be wages or conditions and stuff like that. So that's coming out of California right now. And I've, I've been looking for somebody to talk to talk to me about the FAST Act because I haven't delved into it enough, but I think it's fascinating that they're already moving in that direction. Then in New York, they're starting to do that as well. So it's we're in this, like, again, kind of fascinating times from a, what direction is this country going to go with regard to free markets? And it seems like we're going away from them versus going towards them. So... Uh, it is interesting, and you know, we, we've even seen movement in uh, or uh, attempts in Cal, in uh, not just California, New York, but we're also seeing it in Connecticut and some other states as well. But what, what, you know, what's very interesting, um, you know, was, I was following. They were essentially trying to do sectoral bargaining for the sharing economy in Connecticut, and um, it, it was interesting that you had unions such as SEIU really out there advocating for it. And um, I, I, I think behind the scenes, the AFL-CIO was kind of throwing some cold water or voicing some skepticism. And it was very interesting that you know, the bill in Connecticut really didn't go anywhere. And that might have been because AFL-CIO said, yeah, you know, we're not crazy about this idea. Yeah. Hey, let me ask you, 
and I know you read a lot and are well-read and, and educated and all that stuff, but let me ask you, have you ever read into Samuel Gompers and his opposition to a lot of this type of moves for the union movement? I mean, a lot of the, you know, very early labor leaders, um, you know, you know, one of the great quotes is that, you know, that I believe it was Samuel Goppers, or might be George Meadey, you know, essentially was for a right to work. You know, he said that, hey, I, I, you know, don't understand why you wouldn't want to join and pay a union, but no one should be forced into it. Um, he said much more yeah. eloquently than that. Um, that was Gompers. Yeah. That was Gompers. Yeah. So, you know, you look back there, I mean, then you look at even Franklin, you know, Delano Roosevelt, uh, FDR was against public sector unions. And it really is interesting over time ha- how things have changed. Yeah, the well, with Gompers, because um, I'm a huge fan of his, and I always kind of refer to I'm not necessarily anti-union, I'm just more Gomper style unionism is it was about freedom and liberty not compulsion. And yeah, he's got a famous quote where he was against, he was for minimum wage, but through unions negotiating it as opposed to the state. And part of the issue that kind of touched on this earlier, the problem that unions have today, which is more existential is without the state doing things for them, they really, they're, they're struggling to find a market. So if you go to say, for example, sectoral bargaining with the FAST Act in California, they want people to be paid a certain amount. They want, you know, all these rules in the workplace. Why should I, as a worker, pay a union for that if the state's doing it? And I think this is what Gompers realized. Like, if you're if you're putting all your faith in the state to enact things for you, you won't need a union. He didn't quite say it that way, but that was his gist on minimum wages. It shows our incompetence, I think he said. But Peter, I, I do want to go back to, you know, something you were saying that, you know, you're a, you're a Gompers union man, or, you know, you're not anti-union. I think there is a lot of people, many, many people that conflate, you know, anti-union with anti-compulsion. And I mean, personally, you know, I wrote a study, that 21st century unionism study, I think unions can, you know, do good if they give up the government granted training wheels, and if they give up the compulsion, and if they become voluntary professional service organizations. So you do see a lot of people that, you know, you know, have that pejorative brand about them that are simply saying, no, you know, there shouldn't be this compulsion. And as long as workers have that voluntary ability, and frankly, even employers have that voluntary ability to work with unions and not be forced into it, that that's the future. And that's where we should be going as a country, as opposed to, you know, doubling down on these old ways of the past instead of, instead of going more towards individual bargaining or catering towards individual workers. We have sectoral bargaining that, you know, advocates now want to turn into bargaining for entire industries and um, taking away then taking away the secret ballot from workers so they don't get to make an informed choice of who represents them. So I, I really think that, you know, what you just said that kind of nails it, that is the dichotomy. It's, you know, the old ways of doing things that are by compulsion, by force. And, you know, that's, you know, one of the main things that I'm up against or that I'm against and then on the other side, you know, you know, like, I think like you said, you know, the Gompers Union man or, um, you know, a more voluntary unionism where unions can thrive as professional service organizations as long as it's voluntary all around. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, when I'm holding classes for employees, like I don't tell people what to do. I do point out the law. I do point out the flaws in the system, so to speak. But it's like people have the right to make a free choice if it's truly free. And whether you support a union or don't support a union, that should be a free choice. When you have the state compelling you to do something, that's not free. And so, you know, from the standpoint of dealing with workers primarily, which is, you know, where I grew up doing, um, it's just a bad system when you're you're compelling people to do things. Because what they end up doing is if somebody's compelled to do something and they speak out against it, they're not allowed to. We see this throughout society right now with cancel culture and all that stuff. You know, that happens at the micro level within unions. It's been happening for years. And especially, you know, with the cancel culture, I think a lot of 
where that started was in going back to those corporate campaigns. I mean, essentially unions wrote the playbook on, you know, this is how you do a smear campaign and this is how you isolate and alienate someone uh, to get something else that you want. Um, so, you know, when the cancel culture first started, um, you know, I, I looked at it almost like, you know, this is, an ex- is it, this is an expansion of corporate campaigns and this is something that the unions have done for years against companies, um, you know, and in many cases, you know, issues that were not even true, but just to strong arm companies through these sophisticated PR campaigns essentially trying to cancel their customers uh, into getting them to sign neutrality agreements that would take away the secret ballot from workers. Oh, they're definitely intertwined. I mean, I, I had a hit piece put out on me last year that um, is written by a writer who happens to be the former executive assistant to Randy Weingarten and, you know, calling companies and, you know, basically putting out some stuff, but not the whole story and all that stuff. So it's, yeah, they're definitely intertwined. It's fascinating though, because I've been taking hits for a long time, but it's, you know, it's just, uh, it's part of the game. So, and I used to do the same thing when I was on the union side too. So it's, you know, very familiar with it anyway. Well, Mr. Vernuccio, we have been on for more than an hour, I think. Um, So let the listeners know where they can reach you again. And I'll, I'll put the links under the audio portion of this episode uh, so they can link to you and, and follow you and all that sort of stuff. Absolutely. Thanks, Peter. Uh, it's I, the number four, aw.org, uh, Institute for the American Worker. That's the, the website. Also for uh, that Drudge Report for Labor News and the research aspect, that's labornewstoday.org. But once again, Peter, also want to plug your union your labor union news uh, at Substack. Uh, it's a fantastic site. And, uh, thanks for all the work you're putting into it. Yeah, well, it's, you know, we've got the um, the big aggregators, laborunionnews.com. And I just um, just realized yeah, earlier this morning, we've got over 800 stories in less than a month. And I haven't even done a hard launch on it. It's just a soft launch. But then the Substack is for the daily digest of all the stuff we're putting on the website. So it's fun. I, it's it's more fun than I've had in years playing on the web. So, <laughs> uh, as long as you're enjoying it, that's right. Keeps me up all night, just like the old days. So anyway, well, Vinny Vernuccio, thanks for coming on Labor Relations Radio. Anytime you have something you want to share with the public, let me know, and I'd be grateful to have you on again. Hey, Peter, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, man. Talk soon. Have a good one. Thank you. Bye, Bye now. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. That was Vinny Vernuccio from the Institute for American Workers. And as I mentioned at the outset, um, he and I have known each other for a very long time, but we don't get to chat all that often. And I really enjoyed the conversation with him. I'm going to put the links to uh, his website as well as some of the articles he's got on there. Be sure to check out what he's got on there about the American Competes Act, because it is a... Uh, another one of those monstrosities of a bill that's got a lot of union giveaways in there. And if people don't know about it and they sign up for grants or whatever, they may, may be biting off more than they can chew or realize. Um, in any case, well, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. Be sure to check us out at laborunionnews.com. Uh, subscribe to the Substack because we put out daily digests on the union news as well as other articles. This podcast will be on there, etc. Again, laborunionnews.com. Share it with your colleagues. And thanks for listening. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio.